Father, once again we plead with you to be our helper. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand the things that are being laid before us. And we will give you thanks in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Canonicity, and what you should know about the New Testament canon. As we mentioned this morning during the service, the word canon is referring to the collection of books that are in our New Testament. More specifically, the idea of a canon is that of a standard. And so often uh, a canon is explained as a measuring rod. It tells you what the correct uh, standard is if you are building something, for instance. You need to know what a yard is, what a foot is, what an inch is. When we come into the context of what we're talking about this afternoon, the canon is that which comprises the boundaries around the written Word of God. What is included in the canon of Scripture. We have 66 books in our canon of Scripture. The New Testament comprises everything from the Gospel of Matthew down through Revelation. That is our canon. We do not look beyond that for God's revelation to us. He has given it to us within those bounds, and that canon is our standard. It is our measuring rod for what we believe and how we behave. Life and faith. And so I want to take a look at that this afternoon and um, talk about what is going on in relation to the canon. That's not the one. There we go. That's the first thing. I'm just going to take us through uh, a number of statements describing the canon, and then we'll talk about each one as we go through. So the first is, is this, and it's, it's most basic. The New Testament books are the earliest Christian writings that we possess. There is nothing we have from the pen of any Christian author that is earlier than the New Testament documents. This is uh, inarguable. This is not controversial at all. Uh, You can go talk to unbelieving Bible scholars, and they will tell you the same thing. Uh, Most likely, most people put the book of James as the earliest New Testament writing, the earliest Christian writing. Uh, But this is the foundation uh, of, of our discussion. One of the most formidable challenges in any discussion about the New Testament canon is explaining what makes these 27 books of our New Testament unique. Why these and not others? And there are many different answers to that question, but as we begin, I just want to focus on this, the date of these books. These books stand out as distinctive because they are the earliest Christian writings we possess. 
As a result, they bring us closest to the historical Jesus and to the earliest church. If we want to find out what authentic Christianity was really like, we want to go back as early as possible. And the books of our New Testament do that for us. This is particularly evident when it comes to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the only Gospel accounts that derive from the first century. Some of us were talking earlier during lunch about other so-called Gospels. Uh, Just as there is an Old Testament Apocrypha, some people speak of a New Testament Apocrypha. That is, documents that sometimes may even bear the name of apostles and purport to be from them, but they're not. And they come about centuries after the original apostles lived, and for the most part, they teach things that are contrary to that which the actual apostles wrote. So we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are others as well that bear the name Gospel, although they're not really of the same genre. And they might bear the name of an apostle, but they are not from the apostles. After all of the scholarly dust has settled, even critics agree that these four are the earliest accounts of Jesus that we possess. Most will mark, well, most will mark, most will mark Mark. Um, Most will say that Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels. And some will try to say that Mark was dependent on some other document. Often they'll refer to this other document as Q. Q does not exist. There is no evidence whatsoever that Q exists. It's just a label that they put on this imaginary early document because they didn't think Mark was capable of actually writing his own gospel. They think he borrowed it from something else. Now it should be noted that there are disagreements about the dating of the, 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 the New Testament uh, books. Um, some liberal scholars um, argue that some New Testament books were, are, are forgeries written in the second century. Now, there are forgeries. These are some of them. Um, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Acts of John. There are all kinds of other books that are out there that were written, and the name of famous people were slapped onto them. This is one example that I used earlier this afternoon. You know, if I wrote something purporting to be Scripture and I stuck on it you know, the epistle of Jim, you're not going to take that very seriously. But if I say, look, I've discovered another of Peter's epistles. I've discovered an epistle of one of the other apostles, then you might take a moment, you might give that some credence, at least investigate that. Now, one of the things that should be mentioned is that we're not saying that books are canonical 
simply because they have a first century date. There are other Christian writings that date from the first century uh, that are not canonical. There is a document, for instance, called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve, which is very early on. It's, it's in the late first century, but it's never been recognized as scripture. It's kind of a manual for church. Uh, it speaks about how church is to be conducted, how worship is to be conducted. It talks about baptism. It says when you're going to bap- baptize somebody, you should do it in running water, cold running water. Right? And then it goes down this list. If you don't have cold running water, then warm running water will do. And if you don't have running water, then still water will do. And it just goes through this. Right? No biblical basis for it all. One, thing, one advantage of understanding the Didache, however, is that it does put forth an early understanding of baptism. It was assumed that baptism was for professing believers, not infants. So early church documents can be very helpful, but just because they're early doesn't mean that they are Scripture. In the end, every Christian should remember one basic fact. Namely, that the New Testament books are distinctive, generally speaking, because they are the earliest writings we possess. None are earlier. And if so, then it seems that the books included in the New Testament are not as arbitrary as some would like to make out. On the contrary, it seems that these are precisely the books we would include if we wanted to have authentic, uh, if we wanted to have access to authentic Christianity as early as possible. There is nothing else that competes. Some of you will remember um, what was there was a series of movies that uh, came out that Tom Hanks was in them. And I didn't have this in my notes. This is just off the top of my head, and I'm forgetting the movie now. But it was this series of movies that were purporting to... Uh, claim that Jesus did not die on the cross. Da Vinci Code, that was it. Thank you very much. The Da Vinci Code, right? And the Da Vinci Code is based on... Janet, were you doing that to me? Because it's true. I'm losing my mind. I can't remember anything anymore. <laughs> I'm watching Janet, and she's there. It's like this... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you stay away from my wife. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can't deny it, unfortunately. My mind is slipping. So the, the idea is right, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Right? He came off. He later got married to Mary Magdalene. They had kids. There's this whole you know, genealogical line descending from, from Jesus. All of that comes out of Gnostic writings in the 3rd, 4th century, which purport to be writings of the apostles. So if you've heard of the, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and things like that, right? that's what we're, we're dealing with. But if we're going to go back as early as possible and ask the question, what did the early church believe? You come to the documents in the New Testament. 
because they are the earliest documents that we possess. There we go. Uh, Number two, the apocryphal writings are all written in the second century or later. Now, many of us have heard of the apocrypha in terms of the Old Testament. That after the close of the Old Testament canon, you have this 400 years, we would say 400 years of silence. But the Catholic Church, for instance, after the Reformation, declared that there were all these other books as well that are typically referred to as the Apocrypha. And there are book like, the books like First and Second Estrus and First and Second Maccabees and Belen the Dragon and all kinds of things. Right? Well, there is, there are a group of books called the New Testament Apocrypha as well. And they are books that I've just been describing that were written second, third, fourth century and they are largely Gnostic in nature. These are things like the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas and the Acts of John and the Proto-Evangelium of James and all kinds of things that have apostles' names attached to them. Uh, And we can't go into a lot of detail on this, but we can at least note one basic fact that's overlooked. All of these apocryphal writings are dated to the second century or later, and late in the second century, the earliest. And this is a corollary to what we were talking about earlier. Not only are all New Testament writings from the first century, but all apocryphal writings are much later. Uh, many from the 3rd and 4th century. And the observation of that simple fact quickly calls into question the sensationalistic claims about how these lost books of the Bible contain the real Christianity. If you ever click past History Channel, you might come across things like this. Brothers and sisters, there are no lost books of the Bible. There are the writings of the apostles and those close to them like Mark and Luke. And there there are things that come much later that the church rejected because it was not consistent with what they knew to be the apostolic writings. One might argue that later texts can still preserve authentic first century Christian tradition. After all, a text doesn't have to be written in the first century to contain material from the first century. That much is true. But we would still need to have a compelling reason to accept texts that are clearly written after the apostolic period. And when it comes to these apocryphal writings, compelling reasons are in very short supply. Uh, For one, we know that many of these apocryphal writings are outright forgeries, pretending to be written by someone who is clearly not the author. That fact alone raises serious questions about the reliability of their content. Many apocryphal writings contain obvious embellishments and legendary additions. For example, in the Gospel of Peter, Jesus emerges from the tomb as a giant whose head reaches the clouds, and he is followed 
by the cross itself. So, at least in, in, in my mind, I have this, you know, I see this cross floating in midair, just following this giant Jesus around. And then, to top it all off, the cross then speaks. That's typical of these later Gnostic writings. Um, Many apocryphal writings, as we've been saying, are theologically Gnostic. That is, they are not Orthodox Christianity. Gnosticism, if you're not familiar with it, uh, arose in the early centuries of the church. It came out of a Judaistic kind of Gnosticism. And it is a religion of secrecy. The Gnostic teachers would come and they say, would say that you know, what you have in the apostolic writings is okay, but we have something more. We have the secret knowledge. Gnostic comes out of the Greek word for knowledge. And it's a secret knowledge. And if you follow us, eventually we can initiate you into this secret knowledge. Well, you can see right off the bat the problem with that because there's nothing secret about Christianity. We want everybody to know everything about Christianity. There is nothing that we're hiding. There is nothing that is reserved for an elite few. But these Gnostic Gospels are full of all of this kind of thing. Now, that doesn't mean that they never contain reliable tradition. We know that early Christians sometimes did appeal to some documents outside of the inspired scriptures. But this is the key point. The scraps of apocryphal literature that may be reliable do not present a version of Christianity that is out of sync with what we find in the New Testament. That is, if the church used other documents, and sometimes they did, the Didache, something called the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, These are documents that are largely in harmony with the apostolic writings. What the church never accepted or used in any capacity were these Gnostic documents. Here's a third thing we need to know. The New Testament books are unique because they are apostolic. One of the most basic facts about the New Testament canon that all Christians should understand is that the canon is intimately connected to the activities of the men who walked with Jesus and learned from Him for three years and then were commissioned by Him to go out and take His teaching into the world. Jesus is the one who told his apostles, his men disciples, that the Spirit of God would bring to their remembrance everything they had been taught. Now we have that in their writings. Jesus had commissioned his apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority when Jesus sent out the twelve, he reminds them that it is for, for, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks 
in you. So he is able to give a warning to those who reject the apostles' authority, saying, whoever does not receive you or heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. So the apostles had the very authority of Christ himself. They were his mouthpiece, and as such, their teachings, along with that of the prophets, were the very foundation of the church. Paul describes the church as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If the church wanted to know the true Christian message, they would always need to look back to the teaching of the apostles. That is what has been given to us by our Lord as authoritative. But the apostles didn't just teach about Jesus orally. At some point, very early on, they began to write down their apostolic message, and often written down by the apostles themselves, or by what we call an amanuensis, right? someone taking dictation for Paul, for instance. At other points, it was written down by a companion of the, gospel, of, of the apostles, right? Mark or Luke, for instance. Either way, the authoritative apostolic message found its way into books. This is what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The tradition is the same. It is simply communicated in different ways, first orally and then in writing. For obvious reasons, the church would value apostolic books above other types of books. And that's exactly what what happened. The books that the church regarded as apostolic were the books that were read and, and copied and used most often in early Christian worship. These were the books that eventually came to be the New Testament canon. The canon is the byproduct of the apostolic ministry. In fact, the church's overt dependence on apostolic writings is precisely why we see a proliferation of apocryphal books in the second century and later that were named after apostles. Everybody understood, unless you can attach a document to an apostle, you're not going to get much of a hearing. So rather than raising doubts about the apostolic nature of the New Testament, these uh, these apocryphal documents actually confirm it. They show that the early church valued apostolic books so much that forgers had to try to mimic the genuine ones in order to get a hearing. Because the early church understood apostolic, inspired. Of course, some modern unbelieving scholars dispute the apostolic authorship of some of the New Testament documents, claiming they were written by later authors only pretending to be apostles. But it should not be forgotten that the early church was in a much better position to ascertain the authorship of these books than modern scholars are 2,000 years later. The early church knew The early church understood. In the end, the New Testament canon exists because of the early Christian belief that the apostles spoke for Christ. 
And that belief led Christians to value apostolic books. And those apostolic books eventually formed the New Testament canon. Fourth thing we need to know is that some New Testament writers quote other New Testament writers as Scripture. We mentioned this this morning in, our, in, in the message uh, in regard particularly with Peter referencing Paul. One of the most basic facts that we need to know, and one of the most fascinating, I find, is that different New Testament authors were familiar with other New Testament authors. They were reading each other's stuff. It's like John Grisham reading, you know, what's his name, King, the, right? Stephen King, right? You, you, you have in the, the early church people reading what others were writing. So Peter was familiar with the epistles of Paul and says that they were Scripture. And this demonstrates that, that, that new inscripturation was not a late development. People understood that when the apostles wrote, for the most part, they were writing Scripture. And they expected that. The most obvious example is, is the one I mentioned um, this morning. Uh, you have Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where Peter is speaking about the fact that people twist Scripture, and he puts it this way, "...regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, so also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. So Peter considers the writings of Paul to be on par with the rest of Scripture. It's noteworthy that Peter references multiple letters of Paul. In all his letters, so Peter was really keeping up with what was being published in the early church, and he knew that. He understood that, that there was some sort of collection of Paul's letters. And more importantly, he assumes his audience is also aware of this collection. There's no indication that the scriptural status of Paul's letters is somehow new or novel or unexpected. Peter mentions it quite casually and naturally. The implications of Peter's statement shouldn't be missed. Apostolic letters had scriptural status while the apostles who wrote them were still alive. So it's hard to imagine that Peter would not have expected his own letters to carry that same apostolic authority and to be received as such. After all, just a few verses earlier, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Peter made it clear that the teachings of the apostles were on par with the Old Testament self. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, 
that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter is writing an epistle and he has no hesitation in putting what he writes on the same level as the, the, as the prophets. Let's keep something else in mind. It's widely agreed that Peter was martyred between 64 and 65 A.D., which means that he had to have written his epistles somewhere in the early 60s. In turn, that means that at a very early date, certain apostolic writings were already recognized as Scripture. At least the early 60s. That's when Peter is writing. And since we can readily assume that Peter didn't just come up with this idea on the spur of the moment with his pen in hand, we can reasonably, reasonably push back recognition of new inscripturation even further. Another example of this is 1 Timothy 5.8, which says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There are two different quotes contained in that verse. The first is from Deuteronomy. We get that. Peter, um, or Luke rather, um, I'm sorry, Paul He's writing 1 Timothy. Paul considered Old Testament documents to be Scripture. That's not a surprise. The second quote, though, is taken from the Gospel of Luke. So we have Paul not only familiar with the Gospel of Luke, but recognizing it as Scripture. If the New Testament writers were citing other New Testament writers as Scripture, that suggests the canon was not just a later ecclesiastical development, as the Church of Rome would like to say, but something early and intrinsic to Christian faith. The Church didn't have to wait for a council to give some kind of declaration. The Church, very early on, was recognizing the authority of these documents because of the intrinsic nature of these documents. Right. Number five, the four Gospels are well established by the end of the second century. One of the most critical statements we find in the early church was written by Irenaeus, who was a bishop of Lyon um, around 180. And he says this, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer than the number they are. For since there are four zones of the world in which we live, and four principal winds, and the cherubim too, were four-faced. Now you can bicker with his argumentation. <laughs> but what this demonstrates is that the church having access to all of these other so-called Gospels, says no, there's four. There's only four. Irenaeus not only confirms the canonicity of the four Gospels, but is keen to point out that only these four are recognized by the church. Indeed, Irenaeus is so certain that the canon of the Gospels is closed that he can argue that it is entrenched in the very structure of creation 
four zones of the world, four principal winds. And Irenaeus is not the only one. There are others who came even before him. Justin Martyr, for instance, writing in 150 A.D., refers to plural Gospels, and at one point provides an indication of how many he has in mind when he describes these Gospels as drawn up by his apostles and those who followed them. That language indicates at least two Gospels written by apostles and two Gospels at least written by those who were not apostles but were close to them. And its most natural understanding is the four Gospels that we have in our canon. You have Matthew and John, apostolic writers, and you have Mark and Luke, who were close to the apostles, traveled with them, uh, most by virtue of an examination of Mark's vocabulary in his text, think that Mark got most of his information from Peter. All of this is confirmed by the fact that Justin cites from all three synoptic Gospels and even seems to cite the Gospel of John directly. So, Justin was a mentor of another man named Tatian. Tatian is also an important witness to the early recognition of the four Gospels as Scripture. Tatian produced something called the Diatessaron, which is a harmony of the four Gospels. A harmony of the Gospels is the attempt to place the Gospels side by side, as it were, so as to provide a comprehensive, somewhat chronological depiction of the events recorded in the Gospels. When Tatian put together his harmony of the Gospels in 170 A.D., Which Gospels did he include? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not his, by the way. This is just an example of what a harmony of the Gospel looks like in a given portion of it. They're still being put together today. One of the uh, most widely used in our day is from a a man named A.T. Robertson in the the last century. But this, this is the process. After that, John was delivered up. Jesus came to Galilee. That's how Mark says it. Matthew says, now when he heard that John was delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee. Luke says, and Jesus entered in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So each gospel writer is referring to the same event, describing it in slightly different ways because they're different people after all. We don't have any use for four Gospels if one's going to be carbon copy of the, 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 the previous one. But the earliest harmony we have is a harmony of the four canonical Gospels. At the end of the second century, the Muratorian fragment lists 22 of our 27 New Testament books. This fragment, named after its discoverer, Muratori, uh, contains the earliest list of the books in the New Testament. And while it 
dates from the 7th or 8th century. The list it contains was originally written in Greek and dates back to the end of the 2nd century, somewhere around 180. What's noteworthy for our purposes here is that the Muratorian fragment affirms 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Those include the four Gospels, the book of Acts, all 13 of Paul's epistles, Jude, 1 John, 2 John, possibly 3 John, it's hard to read apparently, and Revelation. That means that at a remarkably early point, at the end of the 2nd century, the central core of the New Testament canon was already established and in place. Of course, it should be acknowledged that the Muratorian canon also seems to affirm the apocalypse of Peter. But the author of the fragment immediately expresses the truth that some have doubts about that one. So you'll hear this quite a bit when you're talking to skeptics, you're talking about people trying to disregard the Bible. And they'll say things, you know, like this, right? Well, you know, there was this conspiracy, and and you know the Council of Nicaea came along, and they 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 did away with all of these other gospels and so forth, and they're they're you know shedding doubt on on the scriptures. This, the fact that that the Muratorian fragment says this about the apocalypse of Peter, and says that you know. A lot of people doubt this. We're not really sure. What does that tell you? It should tell you nobody's trying to hide anything. Everybody's very upfront with where that process is at any given time. Nobody's trying to, to cover anything up. In fact, those hesitations about the apocalypse of Peter eventually won out. And that document never... Uh, received wide affirmation in the church. Certainly never earned a final spot in the canon. The fact that there is some disagreement during this time period over a few of the peripheral books should not surprise us. It took some time for the issue of the canon to be settled. The, uh, this, this occasional disagreement should not keep us from observing the larger and broader unity that Christians shared regarding the core of the New Testament books. If there was a core canon from an early time period, then there are two significant implications that we can draw from this. First is that the debates about canonical books concerned only a few. By 180, we have essentially a settled canon in regard to 22 of the 27 books. Books like 3rd James, 3rd John rather, James, 2nd Peter and so on. Um, there was that took a little longer for the church to come to agreement on. Early Christianity was not this wide-open literary free-for-all where there was no agreement on much of anything. That's the impression that some would like to give you. Instead, there was an agreed-upon core that no one really disputed. Also, the theological trajectory of early Christianity was determined 
before the totality of the canon was set. If you've got 22 books of the New Testament settled, you essentially have the core of doctrinal Christianity settled as well. And that was indeed the case. Regardless of the outcome of discussion over books like 2 Peter or James, Christianity's core doctrines regarding the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the means of salvation, were already in place and already established. The acceptance or rejection of books like 2 Peter would not change that fact. So the Miratorian fragment stands as a reminder of two important facts. First, Christians did disagree from time to time over books. That was inevitable, particularly in the early stages. But this list also reminds us of a second, more fundamental fact, namely that there was widespread agreement over the core at a very early date. Early Christians often used non-canonical writings. For Christians struggling to understand the development of the New Testament canon, one of the most confusing and perhaps concerning facts is that early Christian writers often cited and used non-canonical writings. In other words, Christians did not only use books from our present canon, our present New Testament. I've already mentioned books like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. Usually Christians discover this fact as they read a book or an article that's being critical of the New Testament canon, and then this fact is used as reason to think that our New Testament writings are nothing special. While the fact itself is true, early Christians did read and use many writings not in the New Testament canon, the conclusions drawn from that fact don't always make sense. When scholars mention the Christian use of non-canonical writings, two facts are often left out. One is the manner of citation. It's important to note that while Christians often cited and used non-canonical literature, they didn't, for the most part, speak of them as Scripture. For the most part, Christians were simply using these books as helpful, illuminating, edifying writings. It's not all that different from the present day. A preacher may quote from C.S. Lewis, saying C.S. Lewis once wrote, that doesn't mean he, he's saying that C.S. Lewis wrote Scripture. I quote from people all the time, right? Lewis and Spurgeon and Calvin and all kinds of people. doesn't mean I think their writings are on par with the New Testament. Right? Also, frequency of citation. Another often overlooked factor is the relative degree of frequency between citations of New Testament books and citations of non-canonical books. For example, scholars often appeal to Clement of Alexandria as the standard example of an early Christian who used non-canonical literature in a way that they say was equal to 
canonical literature. But when it comes to frequency of citation, this is far from true. J.A. Brooks, for instance, observed that Clemens cites the canonical books about 16 times more than apocryphal and patristic writings. When it comes to the Gospels, the evidence is even better. Clement cites apocryphal Gospels 16 times total, where he cites just the Gospel of Matthew 757 times. So there's a clear distinction there. Christians need to understand this simple fact about the New Testament canon. Early Christians used other books besides those that are in our Bible. That doesn't mean that they considered those other books to be Scripture. There is nothing different about the first century in that regard compared to the present day. If you've got a preacher who is doing his job, who is studying hard, and coming to you with the results of his study, he will inevitably be quoting other men that he has been reading in preparation. Likewise, the early church. Number eight, the New Testament canon was not decided at Nicaea or any other church council. This is another thing that comes out of things like the Da Vinci Code and uh, it's simply not the case. For whatever set of reasons, there's a widespread, a widespread belief out there on the internet and popular books that the New Testament canon was decided at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 under the conspiratorial influence of Constantine, the emperor at the time. And the fact that this claim was made in Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, shows how widespread it has become. Even if people didn't hear about this before, they would have received it by reading his book or watching that movie. Brown didn't make up that belief. It existed before he mentioned it, but he did use it in his book. The problem with this, however, is that it is patently false. Every time someone wants to deny something about Christianity, they'll blame it on the Council of Nicaea. They will say, for instance, just to give you another example, early Christianity believed in reincarnation, but the Council of Nicaea squelched it. And this happens all the time. Right. The Council of Nicaea, for some reason, is the catch-all. And in this regard, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon. Uh, nor did Constantine, for that matter. Nicaea was concerned with how Christians should articulate their beliefs about the deity of Christ. That was the focus of the Council of Nicaea. And so, the Council of Nicaea is the birthplace of the Nicene Creed, which has nothing to do with the canon of Scripture, but everything to do with who Jesus was. When people discover that Nicaea did not decide the canon, the follow-up question usually is, well, which council did? 
Surely we could not have a canon without some sort of authoritative official act of the church by which it was decided. Surely we can, uh, we, we have a canon because some group of men somewhere voted on it. Right? Wrong. This is what you'll hear a great deal from Roman Catholic apologists. Well, you Protestants, you're just piggybacking off the Catholic Church. We gave you your Bible. We determined what the Bible was. Simply not the case. This whole line of reasoning reveals a fundamental assumption about the New Testament canon that needs to be corrected. Namely, that it was or had to be decided by a church council. The fact of the matter is that when we look into church history, we find no such council. There are regional church councils that made declarations about the canon, but these regional councils didn't just pick books they happened to like. They affirmed the books that were already recognized by the church. That's what's happening. The church recognizes inspiration. It doesn't declare inspiration. They affirmed the books that they believed had functioned as the foundational documents of the Christian faith. They were declaring the way things had been, not the way they wanted them to be. So these councils did not create, did not declare the canon. The church affirmed the canon as it had already been recognized, which takes us back again, right? 180. And we already have the recognition of 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Without any kind of declaration. Simply by common usage within the church. And in using these books, they were recognized. Right? Now this raises an important fact about the New Testament canon that we all should understand. The shape of our canon was not determined by a democratic vote, but by a broad consensus of the people of God. And here we can agree with with. Bart Ehrman. Anybody familiar with Bart Ehrman? Let me just give you a little background about Bart Ehrman because he always comes into these discussions. Bart Ehrman grew up in a Christian household. He went to Wheaton. He considered himself to be an evangelical. And then he went to Princeton. And that was his big mistake. Because at Princeton, although he studied with Bruce Metzger, who was a faithful, believing scholar, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century, Ehrman lost his faith at Princeton. And he has now become the guy who popularizes all of these arguments to denigrate the New Testament and try to convince people that the New Testament is not the inspired Word of God. As a now university professor, he feels that it's his job to destroy the faith of others. But even Ehrman says that the canon of the New Testament was 
what's the quote here, was ratified by widespread consensus rather than proclamation. It was ratified by widespread consensus rather than by official proclamation. So no council, no pope, nobody coming along and saying, I'm exerting my authority, this is the New Testament, and you can't argue with me. It was a process by which the church came to agreement organically. The Spirit of God is working through His people. And the Spirit within God's people recognized the Spirit within the Scriptures. We'll talk more about that in a while. This historical reality is a good reminder. The canon is not just a man-made construct. It wasn't a a result of a power play brokered by rich cultural elites in a smoke-filled room. It was the result of many years of God's people reading, using, and responding to these books. The same was true for the Old Testament canon. It was recognized in the same way. Jesus himself used and cited the Old Testament writings with no indication anywhere that there was uncertainty about which books belonged. Indeed, he held his audience to um, account for knowing these books. What did he criticize the Pharisees for? You error because you don't know the Scripture. And they should have known the Scripture. That was his point. How could they know the Scripture unless they knew what the Scripture was? What were the boundaries? What's in and what's out? Jesus assumed everybody knew. But there's no Old Testament council. There's no no Jewish council that decided this. So we acknowledge that humans played a role in the canonical process, but not the role that is so often attributed to them. Humans did not create and determine the canon. They responded to that which already was. The books in your New Testament were inspired the moment they were written. And the people of God recognized that. They did not vote on it. They did not simply declare it. There was disagreement about the canonicity of some books. We've already touched on this. The process was not always neat and tidy. It was not a pristine, problem-free process where everyone agreed on everything from the outset. On the contrary, the history of the canon is at points quite tumultuous. Some Christians received books that were later rejected and regarded as apocryphal. Uh, There was disagreement at times over some of the canonical books, as we've already mentioned. Origen mentions that books like 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and James were doubted and disputed by some in his day. Dionysius of Alexandria tells us that some thought Revelation was not actually written by John and should therefore be rejected. Which itself, by the way, is just another confirmation of the great weight which was given to writings from the apostles. It's important to be, that we be reminded of these disputes so that we don't conceive of the history of the canon in an overly sanitized fashion. The canon was not given to us on golden tablets 
by an angel from heaven, like is claimed for the Book of Mormon. God delivered the canon through normal historical circumstances. And historical circumstances are not always smooth. What is unfortunate is that these disagreements among Christians are sometimes used as an argument against the validity of the 27 books that we know today. Critics claim that such disagreements call into question the entire canonical enterprise. Why should we trust the outcome, it's argued, if some Christians disagreed along the way? Well, there are a number of answers to that. First, we shouldn't overlook the fact that these disputes only affected a handful of books. We keep coming back to that. Right? For the most part, the New Testament was recognized very early on by everyone. Critics often present the history of the canon as if every book was equally disputed. And it's just not the case. The vast majority of these books are in place by the end of the second century, and everybody agrees. Second, we should not overestimate the extent of these disputes. Origen, for example, simply tells us that these few books were disputed by some. But in the case of Second Peter, Origen is quite clear that he himself accepts it, and most did. So there's no reason to think that most Christians during this time were rejecting these books. Some were not sure. Discussions were still going on. But it seems like the church fathers, like Origen, were simply acknowledging the minority report. Yeah, these are what most everybody accepts, but there are a few that are still working through the process on, on these couple of books. That's the situation that we've got. Also, the church eventually reached a broad, deep, long-lasting consensus. After the dust had settled on all of these canonical discussions, the church was quite unified in all of these writings. Now, Critics, of course, will suggest that this is an irrelevant fact and should be given no weight. For them, the decisive issue is that Christians disagreed. But why should we think that disagreements among Christians are significant while unity among Christians are insignificant? That doesn't make any sense. Right? The latter ought to be given the same weight, at least, as, as the former. But even after offering these responses, we should recognize there's still a deeper issue in play for those who think disagreements among Christians invalidate the truth of the canon. Beneath that objection is a key unspoken underlying assumption. Namely, that if God were to give his church a canon, he would not have done it the way he did it to which we would simply have to ask, how do you know? This is an assumption that we can only believe that we have the writings God intended if there were very few, if any, dissenters, and if there was virtually immediate and universal agreement on all 27 books. Now, we've already discussed the fact that on many of the books, there was immediate agreement. 
Peter immediately recognized the writings of Paul as Scripture, and his own for that matter. But there are all kinds of reasons why we should think this, this charge to be false. And what we've said already, how does the critic know how God would have chosen to provide his canon? That's a pretty obvious one. But even more than this, the manner in which God did give his canon made developmental disagreements inevitable. Anything that takes time is going to have some untidiness. Just the practical reality of giving books in time and space in real historical circumstances, spread out over different authors on different continents at different times would naturally create dispute. And that's what we have. Whenever someone shows angst over these kinds of disagreements, I often ask a simple question. What did you expect the process would be like? It's at that point that people often realize that they have an overly pristine expectation about how God would deliver the Scriptures, an expectation that is entirely their own. God never told us we should expect Him to give us the Scriptures in a different way. And all of this reminds us that God sometimes uses normal historical processes to accomplish His ends. Those historical processes are not always neat and tidy, but this shouldn't distract from the reality that the ends are still God's ends. You know, connected to this, we can just look at the variations within the New Testament documents themselves. When we talk about how God delivers His Scripture to us through historical circumstances, what do we find in the text of the New Testament? If you were to put before me some unlabeled, portion of the New Testament, or a couple of them. I could probably tell you the author, because I am so familiar with the vocabulary and the style and the themes of the biblical authors. They're all different. Paul doesn't write like John. John doesn't write like Peter. And they write about different things, and they have different vocabulary that they use. But people you know, want to put forth this idea that if, well, if all of this is inspired by the same God, it should all be identical, right? It should all be reflective of that. And God says, no, I'm going to provide my word through a host of different authors. And they're all going to come with their own backgrounds and their own personalities and their own experience. And that's the way I'm going to provide my word to you. Early Christians believed that canonical books were self-authenticating. And this is where we're going to wrap all of this up. How do we know which books are from God and which books aren't? Again, that's one of those questions that there are a lot of different answers to, some of which we've already dealt with. Certainly the apostolic origins of a book can help identify it as being from God. And the church's overall consensus on a book can be a part of how we identify it 
as being from God. But it's interesting to note that the early church fathers, while agreeing that apostolicity and church reception are fundamentally important, also appeared to, uh, appealed to another factor that is often overlooked, certainly in modern studies. They appealed to the internal qualities of the writings. In other words, the early church argued that these books bore certain attributes that distinguished them from others as being uniquely from God. They argued that they could hear the voice of the Lord in these particular books. In modern theological language, they believed that canonical books are self-authenticating. As Jesus said in John 10:27, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me." If we belong to the Lord, we hear his voice in his word. Origen is quite clear that the divine qualities of books play a role in their authentication. If anyone ponders over the prophetic sayings, it is certain that in the very act of reading and diligently studying them, his mind and feelings will be touched by a divine breath, and he will recognize the words he is reading are not utterances of man, but the language of God." And elsewhere, Origen says similar things. He defends the canonicity of the book of Jude because it is filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace. And he defends the canonical gospels because of their truly venerable and divine contents. He even defends the canonicity of Hebrews on the ground that the ideas of the epistle are magnificent. Tatian who we mentioned earlier, is very clear about the role of the in internal qualities of these books. He says, I was led to put faith in these scriptures by the unpretending cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed of future events, and the excellent quality of the precepts. Jerome defended the epistle of Philemon on the grounds that it is a document which has in it so much of the beauty of the gospel, which is the mark of its inspiration. And Chrysostom declares that in the gospel of John there is nothing counterfeit, because the gospel is uttering a voice which is sweeter and more profitable than that of any harp or any music, something great and sublime. Right before quoting Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and Philemon, chapter 4, verse 5, uh, or, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 5, Clement of Alexandria says that you can distinguish the words of men from the words of Scripture because no one will be so impressed by the exhortations of any of the saints as he is by the words of the Lord himself. Right? We could add to that. But this is what we mean by self-authenticating. Now, we've got to remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, when he talks of the natural man. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So when we're talking about the Scriptures being self-authenticating, we're speaking about it in the context of believers. An unbeliever is not going to pick up the Scripture and say, unless the Spirit of God is at work in him, right? He's not going to pick it up and he's going to say, well, obviously this is the Word of God. That takes the Spirit of God. 
we do. I pick up the Scripture and I hear the voice of my Lord in the Scripture. Now, that's not an apologetic argument that I would make. If I'm talking to an unbeliever, I'm not going to say, well, you should believe the Bible because when I read the Bible, it's the Word of God to me. And he'd say, well, I read the Bible and it's not, so now where do we go? But not everything has to be an apologetic argument. At this point, one might expect an objection. If the internal qualities of the books really exist, how do we explain that they are rejected by so many? Why don't more people see these qualities? And that brings us to what we've just been talking about. The role in the, of the Holy Spirit in helping, to see pe- helping people to see what is objectively there. This is what Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The non-Christian will not find this argument persuasive. Isn't it a little suspicious, he might object, that Christians claim that they're the only ones who can see the truth of these books and everyone else is blinded to it. That seems self-serving and that's an understandable objection. But if Christian doctrine concerning the fall and original sin and the corruption of the human heart are true, then it also follows, as Paul said there in 1 Corinthians, that a person without the Spirit is never going to understand. He's never going to experience what we experience unless the Spirit of God gives him life, at which point he's no longer an unbeliever. It's not all that different than the reality that some people are tone deaf and therefore unable to discern whether a musical note is on key. You can imagine a tone deaf person objecting. This whole on key thing is a sham run by musical insiders and elites who claim to have a special ability to hear things. But despite all the protests, the truth of the matter would remain. There is such a thing as being on-key or off-key, whether the tone-deaf person hears it or not. We also need to remember that not all truth is apologetic truth. Something can be true without being useful in a specific context. Something may be helpful to God's people while not making an impact on the unbeliever at all. Not everything has to have an evangelistic quality to it. In the end, the church fathers teach us a very important truth. The New Testament canon that we possess today is not due to the machinations of later church leaders or the political influence of Constantine, but due to the fact that these books impose themselves on the church through their divine inspiration. It is the Spirit-led recognition of Spirit-authored books. Or, as Harvard professor Arthur Darby Nock used to say about the formation of the canon, the most traveled roads in Europe are the best roads. That is why they are so heavily traveled. The books in our canon are in our canon because it was recognized that they are the books which bear the mark of divinity. And as such, 
as they are the, the, the product of apostolic witness, they are the books that are most useful, to put it in pragmatic terms, for the church of Jesus Christ. Right? So we'll leave it there. Uh, we usually spend some time with questions. If anyone has any, we can talk about some of this. Tony, yes. Uh, I think he's at Duke. Yeah, yeah. So he is, and he, you know, he's, uh, he has written a, a, a great deal. He's put a lot of books um, out into the marketplace, um, both scholarly and popular. The interesting thing is that his popular books are very much different than his scholarly books. He'll say things when he's writing to scholars um, that is much more reined in. He'll put things in his popular books that he would never say to a scholarly audience because he knows he'd be called out on them. So it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. But, you know, a blind squirrel finds an acorn now and then, so every now and then he says something that is true. We don't want to disregard everything that anybody says. Mike? Yeah. So the Dead Sea Scrolls um, were a major discovery back in the 1940s. And the story goes that there was a shepherd boy uh, out with his flock, and there were some of his sheep uh, who made it into a cave down by the Dead Sea. And he threw a rock into the cave, trying to get the sheep out, because he didn't want to climb up the cliff to where the, the cave was. And he heard something break. And when it was investigated, this cave was full of clay jars. And now the kid didn't know what he had found, but it turns out that within those clay jars were ancient manuscripts, many of which were copies of some of the books of the Old Testament. Other things as well. But that's dealing, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are exclusively Old Testament era documents, not New Testament documents. And so those documents were, were recovered. Um, they have been, uh, some of them have been translated. Some of them have not been dealt with in all of this time. And that is a controversy within itself. You know, when scholars get involved in things like that, they become very territorial. And so that's been a problem in getting out uh, these documents. But the interesting thing in regard to canonicity is that when you take those manuscripts found in the Dead Sea, uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you compare them with the Old Testament that we have, they're virtually identical. Right? There are copies of Isaiah and some other books in there, and there are no significant differences whatsoever. Tess? Some of them. Yeah, some of them, they would tour museums and so forth. Right. Right. Yeah. So, Anne, yes.
Okay. Uh huh. Is that something I don't know about that, but that is certainly how those documents spread. Okay, so whether one would keep them for his own family, you know, in in a sense, because there would be someone who would keep, be keeping them for the church. Okay? So. It, 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 it went like this, um, as you, you describe it. Peter writes an epistle, sends it off. Some would be directed, like in Paul's, right? He's writing to the church at Corinth. It's very specific. Um, some, like Peter's epistles, uh, were circular. So they would be distributed to a lot of different churches because it was just general. That's why they're called general epistles. Um, but you'd be in a church and you would receive a letter uh, by hand, of course. Right? There's no postal service, Pony Express. You've got somebody who would be appointed to be the messenger, and they take this letter to your church. And the church and the document would be handed to the elders of the church, and they would read it in the hearing of the entire congregation. This is what Peter has written to us. Now, when you read some of the New Testament documents and you imagine that happening, it gets a little comical. Right? When you've got Paul writing and he's saying, all right, you got these two women there that are having some trouble with one another and they need to put a stop to it, right? And he names them. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of those two bickering women and hearing your name from the pulpit. But that's what would happen. Now, as people are traveling around the ancient world, you've got a Christian who maybe you know, is going from Colossae to Ephesus. Right? Not that far away. They're conducting business. And while they're in Ephesus, of course, they're coming to church at the church at Ephesus. And the guy from Colossae hears that they have a letter from Paul. Now he says, my church should hear what Paul has to say. And so before he goes home, he's going to sit down, he's going to copy it out, and he's going to take it with him. Right? Now remember, this is early church. They didn't have beautiful, comfortable buildings like ours. So somebody's got to be in charge of keeping these documents. And so in that sense, there would be people there. And you know, maybe there was. Uh, I don't know of any evidence that we have that people copied them for their own possession. I think um, if, if you've just received a, a letter from an apostle, you might be very careful with it. Um, you know, you don't you don't want to just hand it through the whole congregation so everybody can make their own copies. Right? Um, you won't have much left. It'll be in tatters before long. But that's generally what happened. 
And then, so that's how the, the New Testament documents were spread throughout the known world. How, how, how do the churches in North Africa get copies of Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and the Gospels? Right? Somebody's got to copy them out. And it's all by hand. Right? And then transported. So that's how it happened. Now, another element of this comes into play. We'll go back and look at two guys who were friends. We've got Augustine and Jerome. Augustine is in North Africa. Jerome is in Israel, in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, depending on the time. And they're corresponding back and forth. And sometimes they're arguing a little bit about this issue or that issue. Right? They've got some kind of theological um, uh, issue that, that they're not in agreement on. One of the reasons for that, and this is why you have in the early church, one of the reasons why in the early church you have a lot of circumstances where you have different church fathers who are taking different positions on things. What happens if you're Augustine and you don't have the entire New Testament yet? You haven't seen some of the documents now included in the New Testament. There's something missing in your understanding that might change your view on something. If you don't have Ephesians, and you're dealing with some issue that Ephesians addresses, you're not going to have everything you need. That took some time. So why do you know, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church likes to talk about the unanimous consent of the fathers? And I'm constantly saying there is no such thing. Whatever issue you want to talk about, you've got church fathers who are uh, sometimes you know, little shades of difference, and sometimes there's some pretty stark difference. One of the reasons for that is because not everybody had every New Testament book. It took time for them to be distributed. As you can imagine, right? writing it out by hand and then walking from one place to, to the next, or if you're lucky, sitting on the back of a donkey. Right? These things didn't happen all at once. So, Good question, Ann. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Thank you, as always, for staying around. I appreciate it. I hope it was helpful. I hope it uh, opened up some, uh, some things to think about for you. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, we are grateful, Father, for the fellowship, and we are grateful for this time to discuss these things. We are grateful, Father, for your word. It is glorious. And the smell of heaven, Father, is all over the pages of the Scripture. And we are so grateful that because the Spirit dwells in us, we can recognize the work of the Spirit in the Scriptures. We pray, Father, that we'd be, we would be men and women of the book and that we would strive always to know Your book more completely, that we might know You better. Thank You again. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you, everyone.